This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live 10 till 1, Monday to Thursday, on your DAB radio, smart speaker, or on the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast, Times Radio Airways takes off again, this time touring the world to find out how other countries are getting on with their vaccination programmes. We go to America, China, France, Spain and Japan uh, some of them doing quite a lot worse than the UK, it has to be said. But first, our columnist panel, it's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie, it's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. I want to talk, bring together two stories today and talk about quitting. And the art of quitting and doing it graciously, perhaps, or not. Maybe that's not the point of quitting. So on the one hand, you've got the royals, uh, Meghan and Harry, quitting with some style, it has to be said, in their interview overnight. You've got Nigel Farage quitting politics as well. Um, has the art of, of quitting and going quietly gone forever, do you think, Libby? <laughs> I don't know. I think I think the, 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 the graceful thing is, is somehow to quit and then not to uh, sort of uh, do something as resentful and, and deliberately damaging as this interview the Sussexes have done. You know, I think it's like when you're thrown off a programme and you're thrown out of the BBC or whatever, or indeed out of Times Radio, you know, you, you should sort of try very hard not to explain why the BBC or Times Radio or the Royal Family are just so wicked and evil and horrible and how it's all their fault and how damaged you were. I think vanishing with a bit of a smile is the thing. I remember Robert Robinson when he, he lost his programme on Radio 4 saying, I was merely the hired hand. It is their decision to make and sort of sashayed off to be Robert Robinson somewhere else. Uh, I, I think grace is grace is, is at issue here. My goodness it is. Uh, what do you think, Rachel? A, la- a lack of grace in the interview? Well, you know, funnily, I was expecting to feel that. But when I actually heard those clips this morning, I didn't stay up and watch the whole thing. But when I heard those clips, 
I felt much more firmly in sort of Team Megan than Team Palace camp, as it were. And um, I do think it is incredibly damaging for the royal family, especially the allegations of racism. And, you know, I think Libby's right about all the, you know, sort of swanking off to a mansion in California, etc. It uh, doesn't look great. But on the other hand, um, that these um, these very serious allegations, I think, will damage the royal family. And, it, you know, they, they seem not to have learned anything from the Diana uh, fallout, where which, again, that was about a sort of young, modern, emotional princess up against a sort of stuffy institution. And there is a kind of, this plays into a much wider culture war, doesn't it, with this sort of generational clash, um, difference between traditionals and liberals uh, and i think it is very damaging the thing that um uh, struck me the most me, interesting the, the... things about it i mean that, that no, go on, Libby. No, yeah. the most interesting thing about it is the questions that the dog that did not bark the follow-up questions which oprah does not seem to have asked there's quite a lot of those questions one would have desperately wanted as an interviewer to ask and the fact that for instance this vague smear that somebody had said to her that they were concerned about the baby's colour and said the baby couldn't have a title. In fact, he does have a title. He's the Earl of Dunbar, apparently. But, you know, this vague smear. The question then is, who said that? A member of the family? A member of the staff? A senior member? Who said that? And because Meghan said, oh, no, well, I actually, no, I couldn't want to damage them by saying it, she's damaged the entire royal family <laughs> by by putting that one smear out. And I think it comes from somewhere deep in her. It comes from having grown up in a profoundly racist country like America, you know, that obviously you would be all the time feeling chippy, you know, about that kind of thing. Um, and about racism generally. But I, I do think that Oprah does not probe. I mean, that's why you choose Oprah, not Paxman. You know, uh, she did not probe. She did not ask a lot of follow-up questions, it seems, which one would really have wanted to hear. The thing that really stuck out for me, actually, was the the sense that she'd wandered into this without really thinking about what she was doing. And maybe it's because she's American and not quite so steeped in the weirdness of the royal family in a way that Brits are. And, you know, you have to buy into the idea of a hereditary monarchy for it to not be completely mad. Uh, you, you know, that, that that's the whole, you know. And so it is a job and it is a life and it completely takes... And, and you know, her talking about the royal family as being like celebrities... Uh, she thought it was just to be like hanging out with LA celebrities and that sort of thing. You know, and Harry not telling her she was going to have to curtsy to the Queen until two minutes before she had to do it. It all just seemed like incredibly unprepared for joining the circus. And whatever you think, you know, you might like the circus, you might dislike the circus, but it, at least you maybe ought to know what you were getting yourself into, Rachel. Yeah, I totally agree. And also quite naive, maybe, of Harry not to have really prepared her. Yes, I think yeah, there's yeah. It's a sort of fairy tale idea of becoming a princess, you know, almost a sort of Disney film version of it. And actually, the reality is sort of boring, hierarchical um, duty, you know, responsibility rather than rights, all really rather old fashioned values that she seems not to have been prepared for. But on the other hand, there is something about the this sort of um, Megan arriving in the family that was a breath of fresh air, that she represented a new generation, a different type of person a whole sort of culture change if you like and 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 that the family wasn't open enough to that it seems that it was also damaging so there was a sort of clash of cultures 
um, that neither neither side feels like were properly dealt with. It does, you're right that in terms of like the sort of the culture war, whatever you, you call it, this this sort of thing plays out all over the place. And you've seen you know similar things at the New York Times, where sort of junior millennial members of staff seem to want to have a say in every sort of editorial. You know, newspapers are traditionally quite hierarchical. You've got the editor at the top, and everyone else sort of falls in line and does they're told. And then you have sort of younger millennials who come in and oh, well, I want to have a say on this. I'm not happy about this. I don't think you should be doing it. And 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 that just creates tension on both sides, doesn't it? And actually quite often people come completely in, ingrained and sort of entrenched in their positions and nobody comes out of that, that conflict well. Yeah, and there's a real generational clash, I think, too, yeah. about yeah. how people see this. Um, yeah, and and that is that to do with that shift from sort of duty and you know respecting hierarchies to everyone's equal very flat society social media society if you like where everyone's equal on instagram <laughs> well it depends on how many followers you've got well exactly probably, yeah uh, that's probably the case <laughs> and do you think um despite what they've said would it have been better for even just for them libby if they just they had just kept quiet and gone and sat with their chickens to live more authentically as they describe it I think I think to be honest it would I think in America this is going to play out fantastically well you know this is going to be because there is this thing now that you can't be an influencer you can't be someone who people respect unless you've suffered and so I think the more you kind of ramp up the suffering and you weaponize any suffering even if it actually wasn't in real life all that great which you went through it weaponize your suffering uh so i think that will work for them for a while i don't think it will work for very long apart from anything else what about this archwell foundation thing which says you know which making the world better one act of compassion at a time i did not actually sense from all the bits i've heard about uh, i'll watch the whole thing tonight in fairness i didn't sense any sense of compassion i never sensed any sense of compassion towards her poor old dotty father i don't sense any compassion towards the queen nearing a hundred her husband nearing a hundred and in hospital charles himself who's been through the mill uh, I, I where is this one act of compassion at a time it's not happening somebody eventually is going to notice that surely We'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Maybe maybe this is it now. Maybe they will now uh, go quietly to spend more time with their podcast. Someone else bidding farewell, possibly, but or probably almost just as likely to come back with a with an interview, uh, <laughs> is uh, Nigel Nigel Farage, former UKIP leader, former Brexit Party leader, uh, now former Reform <laughs> Party leader. Um, he's had more I'm resignations. Sure, it's than not I've the last we've in. seen of. <laughs> surely not the last we've seen of him. I I can't quite believe it. But in the contrast with the quitting i thought it was interesting you drawing the parallel the contrast between the two is nigel farage has quit having changed politics changed the country you know forced the tory party into his image uh rather than um being forced you know out by sort of more traditional structures um you know if in a way nigel farage is the most powerful politician who's never been elected yeah, where do you stand on this, uh, Libby? Because I, um, I uh, when the news broke on Saturday, I, I was tweeting it. about it and, and laughing. And I was told by numerous people, with union, often with Union Jacks in their Twitter handles, that he's the most influential politician in history. And <laughs> my quibble I, I, with I, that I, I rather, is... I'm enjoying... Yeah. No, go on. My, my, my quibble with that was that he... I'm, um, saying, I'm enjoying uh, very much wanted. Rachel's take on, on Nigel Farage... 
Yeah, Nigel Farage is the Meghan Markle of British politics. I, I haven't, haven't seen that before, but now I do. But I mean, what, the interesting thing is what he has been, he has been a totem. He's a beery figure who people of a certain kind could rally round, who, who reckon themselves to be sensible, no-nonsense, good old-fashioned British people. Um, and nobody's actually ever elected him, but he's, he has acted as a kind of totem. And I think he, he has changed things. He gave he gave a certain a certain sense of, of power and and comfort to that particular set of Faraji people. Um, but he's basically he's a carved totem pole, and therefore I think he's not really left. He'll still always be there. There'll be issues over which people will really should consult Farage to see what they ought to feel and think. Oh. <laughs> well, that was it. Even even in the interview with the Telegraph, in which he announced he was stepping down, the intro was that he was. Um... Uh, quitting politics, and about six pars in, he wanted to uh, tackle the question of China and um, sort of woke <laughs> cancel culture. And so he's, he is quitting politics, apart from foreign and domestic politics. Uh, <laughs> seems to be the, seems to be the thing. But you can now you can now get a recorded video from Nigel Farage on Cameo, this website where sort of slightly, let's go to slightly washed up celebrities. Uh, you can, you know, you can get to say happy birthday to you or something for just £63.75. Uh, and uh, is that something you're going to be taking him up on, Rachel? I think I'll give that one a pass, actually. Um, but what I think is fascinating, <laughs> though, is that, you know, the Tory party has changed into the UKIP stroke Brexit party so that he's not needed anymore. And I think Libby's absolutely right. He's a kind of culture war totem pole that people he sort of set an agenda and set hairs running um that others have now taken up so in a way he's he's kind of um got himself out of a job by creating others in his image um, but that that i mean that's a sign of his influence at one level yeah, I suppose that is, that is probably uh, right. That's enough of Nigel Farage and enough of uh, Meghan and Harry. Uh, Libby, let's talk about your column today, which is politics, but the sort of thing we don't probably uh, talk about enough. And it's, uh, it's the way we treat farm animals. Yes, yeah, specifically, the, the, um, the, there's a private member's bill, I don't know whether it'll get anywhere, going uh, in on Wednesday, about um, these horrible farrowing crates for sows, where they are sort of trapped in these kind of iron iron brace things so that they can't move around much, they can't do their normal things, they can't make a nest for their piglets, they can't, you know, do much. Um, and the, the farms, farmers say, well, if oh, they would roll on their piglets and kill them, well, indeed, piglets do get killed by being rolled on in you know in bad conditions but open farrowing can work i mean i've lived with pigs we had we had pigs you know for, for 10 years um farming and it was absolutely fascinating to watch them they're intelligent and sensible animals and uh, they are very good mothers and they're being sort of the, the stopping animals from having any kind of a natural life you know sheep has a natural life it goes out it grazes it wanders around with its flock that's fine cows same sort of thing but the moment you make it, as you do in many kinds of intensive farming, so unnatural, it's a form of cruelty. And I don't think we have a right to food being dirt cheap, especially when we throw away enormous amounts of food every year. I think, you know, these things have to be thought about. Um, you know, on one side, you've got extreme mm. militant vegetarians saying don't eat any meat. And on the other, you have people so squeamish that they won't even consider or pay attention to the kind of thing that I was writing about today. And somewhere we need to find a middle ground. We need to find a sensible middle ground. Uh, that That's really all I was saying. Uh, and as I say, I, someone had to speak up for sows, really, basically. 
Well, quite right too. And actually, it's one of the things, isn't it, where um, a, a genuine benefit of uh, Brexit is that we do, on lots of animal rights and animal welfare issues, we do now have the possibility to do what lots of people say is the right thing because we 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 can now. We don't have to sign up for the same rules as the rest of the rest of Europe. I saw. Um, uh, was it uh, Zach Goldsmith was tweeting about uh, foie gras in particular? It, yeah, it was another example of something that now uh, we are able to ban uh, from being uh, sold in the UK um, in uh, uh, in tinned torture in a tin was how he how he described it. Um, uh, so there, there is, that is actually one upside, isn't it, uh, Rachel? That's true, and um, I think Libby's absolutely right that uh, those of us who aren't vegetarian or don't want to go that far, a lot of us do want the conditions to be um, decent for animals, and you want to feel that you're not, you know, adding insult to injury, if you like, by eating meat, that there's a cruelty involved uh, as well. Uh, And I didn't even know about this whole issue of the farrowing crates, but I thought it was... um, really shocking and and Libby's column was fascinating there's a brilliant detail about how when John Gummer came to visit your farm Libby that he was wearing these shiny black shoes and the teeny-weeny piglets thought that it was their shiny black mother and kept um sort of snuggling up to his shoes <laughs> lovely that <laughs> the sort of intelligence <laughs> of these um animals is extraordinary Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, then. of course, you can read them both in The Times. Libby on a Monday, Rachel on a Tuesday. Just get yourself a Times subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, vaccination nations, how other countries are getting on with the jab. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now buckle up. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard Times Radio Airways. Britain is currently cruising at 22 million vaccinations, or 33% of the population, putting it fifth in the world. 85% of people in the UK say they're willing to have the jab. And after considerable turbulence, the approval of the UK government's handling of the pandemic has cleared 40% for the first time since last summer. But how are other countries doing? Please take a moment to review the vaccine safety card in the seat pocket in front of you. Sit back and relax as we take you on a whistle-stop tour of the world. 
Well, let's start by crossing the Atlantic. We land in the United States of America in Pennsylvania. And who is waiting for us but Sarah Baxter from the Sunday Times. Sarah, what's the weather like? It's rather lovely. It's a beautiful sunny day. Touch, touch frosty, but there's a definite sense of spring in the air. Lovely, lovely. And is, is hope springing eternal as well? There's a, if we look at the sort of the pattern of what's happened in America, it feels like 2020 was a pretty terrible year in terms of coronavirus, but things are improving a bit. Yeah, they're actually improving quite fast now. I mean, last year was miserable. Uh, it started in denial and ended with, you know, half a million deaths. Um, uh, this year, things are really beginning to lift now. And um, there's talk of having lots of people vaccinated by the end of April. I think that's still too optimistic. My husband has found a vaccination date at the end of this month. I'm not eligible quite yet. So, um, and, you know, trying to get these things online is a real lottery. And, and what are the rules on, is it, is it being done by age? Is it just, you know, whoever can get on the website? Who, who can and can't get a vaccine? It's a bit of everything, really. Uh, there are still quite strict priority rules and um, you have to have various underlying conditions. But it also depends from state to state. So um, I've been spending a lot of time in Pennsylvania, as you know, but I'm also a resident of New York State. And in Pennsylvania, the media accounts for an early-ish vaccination, not quite yet but doesn't in New York. So I'm <laughs> wondering whether or not I can go for one in Pennsylvania or whether, you know, my driving licence will stop me from doing that. So it's, very, it's a very mixed bag because America is not one size fits all. Different states have different laws. And I'm sure you've heard that um, places like Texas have really jumped the gun and said they're lifting the mask mandate before anybody's really had all their vaccinations. So, you know, there's a very complicated picture here. So in the sort of the global league table, the United States is, I think, 10th uh, with 17.2% of the population uh, vaccinated. In terms of what the impact this is having on, on politics, I was struck looking at the uh, the YouGov government approval ratings. At the start of the pandemic, about half of Americans thought the pandemic was been handled well. That fell to just over 30% by the end of January. But since then, it's jumped back up to something like 47%. I wonder what that, why that could be. What, what happened at the end of January that might have, might have led to this change? Well, it's really hard, really hard to remember, Matt, but I think there might have been a change of president at some point. I do want that. But what was really interesting was looking at vaccine willingness, which has bounced around quite a lot in America. It was down to sort of the mid 30s, uh, 36, 37 percent of people said they were going to have the vaccine. That's now climbed uh, back above 50 percent again. And again, that's since January, since the Biden administration arrived. Is there a sense of now he's taking it seriously, so more of America is going to take it seriously? And actually, the concern that lots of Americans wouldn't have the vaccine may be proved unfounded? Well, there are plenty of vaccine deniers around, but the truth is that even President Trump, former president, I should say, let slip the other day that he had been quietly vaccinated, he and Melania, before leaving the White House. He didn't make a big song and dance about it. It might have helped if he'd said to his supporters he was doing so, because it's particularly uh, Trumpists who are very anti-COVID-19 uh, restrictions etc but but um i think if even he has been vaccinated then that's a good sign and um i think people are falling into line and in the end they won't want to be the last holdouts you know because ultimately i think quite a few jobs are going to say have you had the vaccine and places are going to want that kind of reassurance
Oh, thank you, uh, Sarah. I'd love to stay in chat, but it's back on the plane, I'm afraid. Please put up your tray table. Seats in the upright position. We take off now. We're heading all the way around to China, where Didi Tang, the, the Times' Beijing correspondent, is waiting for us. First of all, Didi, what's the weather like with you? Oh, the weather. Oh, <laughs> cold, still damp, <laughs> cold. Can't wait for the spring to be here. And the uh, smoggy. Good, that's, uh, the smog that has sounds returned. much like it is here. That's as much like it is. Is it just the smog is back? Is that because the economy is back and booming again? Possibly, possibly. Last year, you know, until last year, I think the air quality had been improving and then we started to take it for granted. But ever since the Chinese New Year, when everybody goes back to work, right, the factories are back in full force. And we see the smog, you know, return as well. So I think that comes with the economic recovery. OK, well, let's talk about um, the uh, recovery for the pandemic uh, on the subject of vaccinations. What, do we have any right. figures for how many people in China have, have had have had, a, had a vaccine? So the latest figure we have is, you know, by the end of February, which is about a week ago, at least 50 million doses, you know, have been given out uh, to the, you know, the population around the country. I think the vaccination rates here in Beijing probably much higher in one district already um, one third of the population in one district have been vaccinated. And I think overall in China, countrywide, uh, Beijing is rolling out this probably pretty aggressive, you know, plans to inoculate as many people as possible. And so the goals are 40% of the population by June and 65% by the end of this year. And hopefully China can reach this herd Im immunity uh, sometimes in 2022. So those are the big, you know, the, the goals. And then China is trying to, you know, hit those targets. I remember when we've spoken about this before, there was this slight feeling that um, because uh, the, the really strict lockdowns have managed to squeeze down cases so low, that actually there right. was a sort of concern or just people thought, well, well I don't need the fact I don't need a vaccine against something that we don't have here. What What's public attitude? It's obviously difficult to gauge public attitude. What are public attitudes like towards having the vaccine? So here in China, at the very beginning, I think just because, you know, China sort of strived for zero infection, you know, of the coronavirus. And for a while, people did not think, you know, it was that necessary to get vaccinated. But now as other countries are getting vac vaccinating their people, right? So they probably will be able to open up the borders. And then China doesn't want to be behind in this kind of global competition in opening up the borders. So this is, again, is go back to the global competition. Like China, you know, if in the US, if the UK should open up the borders, if China still has to, you know, keep its borders closed, it's not good for the economy. So now China has this new strategy, you know, in the next phase, in the new phase of this pandemic. Now the game is about vaccinating your people as fast as possible. Rather than just, you know, you still strive for the zero infection, right? But now it's the sort of the second phase of the pandemic. And just funny, is it, is it voluntary or is it going to be mandatory to have the vaccine? It's voluntary. It's voluntary at this point. And so, so, but, you know, in China, we don't have as many those people who are anti-vaccinators as in some Western countries. Usually people are very acceptive of vaccines. Uh, like, for example, like for children, right, vaccines, those are like vaccines for children, they're mandatory. So there's kind of a culture here that it's okay. People trust, you know, the vaccines. They know, you know, you know, those vaccines, they kind of, they listen to the government, right? You know, when the government tells them to wear the mask, they will do that. And if the government says, urges them to get vaccinated, and I think that most people, they will, they will sign up for it. I don't think, you Did know, I mean, it's a problem for them to, to say, no, no, we don't trust the vaccines. 
Yeah, Didi Tang, really good to speak to you. Didi Tang's the Times Beijing correspondent there. Uh, now, everyone back on the plane, everybody. Same seats as last time. No, no chopping and changing. We are Times Radio Airways staying in Asia right now. Just a shortish hop round to Tokyo, where the Times Asia editor, Richard Lloyd Parry, joins us. First of all, Richard, what's the weather like? Uh, it's been a bit rainy. It's been great weather last few days, but it was raining this morning. OK, so let's uh, let's stick with Japan first of all. Just 46,469 vaccinations so far. Uh, I mean, well behind other comparable countries. Why so late starting? Yeah, it's a few reasons. One is that they they seem to have there seems to have been a very, a very elementary and embarrassing screw up um, over the contracts in securing these vaccines. So months ago, last year, they were announcing very proudly that they'd secured enough vaccines to cover everyone. Uh, but it turned out they hadn't. The small print, which the bureaucrats clearly hadn't read closely enough, didn't commit uh, Pfizer uh, to delivering it when they thought it was. They were expecting to have all vaccines they needed by mid-year. Actually, they don't get them by mid-year. So there's a shortage of vaccines. There's a shortage of the right syringes as well. So they can only get four doses out of each vial rather than five, which you get from the best syringes. And there's also, although no one talks about it very much, there's a kind of reluctance to, to go in full throttle. Um, I mean, no one says this, but I, I get the sense that a lot of people in Japan are quite happy for the rest of the world to act as guinea pigs on these vaccines. There is a certain amount of vaccine hesitancy and was even before this pandemic. It's interesting. So, so it's not the um, what's been the sort of public reaction to these sort of administrative uh, cock-ups? Is it is it, it the anger towards the government, or you're, it sounds like people are quite happy to sit back and wait? There's no public clamour. Yeah, I mean, the reason why there hasn't been all that much public clamour is that, but by the standards of North North America and Western Europe, and certainly the UK, Japan's doing very well. So, so very roughly, there have been one-tenth the number of cases here and one-twentieth the number of deaths, although Japan's population is about twice that of Britain. So, you know, relatively, they're doing really well. Uh, it, it doesn't feel like an emergency. There's a still a, what they call a state of emergency in Tokyo, but all that really means in practice is that you're encouraged to work at home and the pubs and restaurants close at eight o'clock, so it could be a lot worse. So that's, that's really, I think, the reason is that it's not a, it doesn't feel like a, a, a terrible thing here at the moment. And what about uh, in the rest of Asia? I was looking through the, the sort of the league table that the, uh, the, 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 on the Times website. Is it South, what, South Korea have only vaccinated 0.6% of the population? Ah, now you're ahead of me on that. I haven't checked that figure <laughs> for a while. I mean, I do know that uh, if you compare with Japan, uh, South Korea is ahead on vaccinations. They, South Korea started rather late, um, I think for similar reasons. They brought it under control, so it doesn't feel that urgent. And also there's a lot of bureaucracy and a certain amount of vaccine hesitancy. But they started, I think, a week after Japan, and they've already uh, vaccinated seven times as many people in Japan. So in that race, South Korea is well ahead. Richard Lloyd Pye, really good speaking to the Times Asia editor. Yeah, on the uh, on on that uh, the Times League table, uh, if you like, Japan is uh, currently down is naught percent. So few, yeah, forty six thousand people have have had the jab. There, no time to waste in Asia though. It's back on the plane, and with a decent headwind, we should be able to make it back to Europe in what three seconds.
Uh, please adopt the brace position as we land in France, currently struggling to get the vaccine programme off the, off the ground. Paris correspondent Charles Bremner is there. First of all, Charles, what's the weather like? It's perfect. Uh, it's an anticyclone, uh, high-pressure area over this whole part of Europe, probably in, in England as well, I think. Very good, very good. Um, right, let's look at how the vaccine's going. Just 5.3% of France is vaccinated compared to, uh, what is it, a third of people in the UK. It puts France 41st of the world, roughly the same as Belgium and the Czech Republic. Uh, only a third of people say that President Macron's government is handling the coronavirus crisis well. Uh, um, how is this all playing out politically? It's not a huge issue because... There was, a, as you know, a certain hesitation about uh, getting vaccinated in the first place. So the government started slowly and very cautiously persuading people it was a good thing. It has accelerated over the last week. They're quite proud that over the weekend they vaccinated something like 400,000 people over the whole weekend, which was a change from before because they were not vaccinating on Sundays before. There, There's now about 3.4 million people, which is about just over 5%. That they are, that's not much worse than Germany. It's about the same as Germany at the moment. So yeah. there's not a feeling of, dissatisf of, of huge dissatisfaction. There's a feeling um, that, that the British have done better over it, but um, it's, it's not a crisis. Yeah, in fact, it's only uh, France is the, one of the only countries now behind but YouGov asking, uh, I think it's 22 countries, how the government's uh, doing it. Uh, uh, France is bottom, then Sweden, then the UK. So, yeah, it's, uh, France is one of the few places where the UK seems to be doing better. Uh, on this question of um, vaccine willingness, and particularly the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, uh, lots of criticism in the UK about uh, President Macron uh, suggesting the AstraZeneca vaccine wasn't safe. Some YouGov polling that's saying that 43% of people in France think it's unsafe um, uh, compared to, you know, Pfizer. 49% of people think Pfizer is, is safe. Is, is there any sign of regret or, from uh, Emmanuel Macron on this? He's not expressed any regret. He didn't actually say it was unsafe. He said there was no evidence that it was effective for people over 65. And he, they rolled back on that and said, now people over 65 are allowed to have it. But um, the, the damage was done. There is a certain amount of suspicion. There's also a lot of suspicion amongst uh, medical staff, which is su surprising, uh, nursing staff, um, hospital staff. And the government's got a problem with that because about a third of them don't want to get vaccinated. And infection is being passed in hospitals quite, at, at quite a high rate. Is there a sense, because actually one of the things we saw in the UK is once the, the programmes you know, got fired up, actually um, more people were willing to come forward. Is that is that what's been happening in France, that as as more people are getting it, public attitudes change a bit and, and actually the numbers were, were pretty good? Yes, uh, people are much more enthusiastic than they were over, over the vaccination. They are, they're in fact, they're long waiting lists. People can't get appointments. Uh, my 85-year-old mother-in-law has still not been able to get an appointment. So she's been trying for weeks and she's on the top priority. So it's uh, most of the people in nursing homes have now been, and, and, and care homes have now been vaccinated. But the rest, there's a, a huge shortage uh, well, we wish your mother-in-law uh, well and I hope she gets a jab soon. Charles Bremner, uh, Paris correspondent for The Times. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, back on the plane now. There we are. It just takes a while to fire the plane up. Remember, if you're chatting with ch travelling with children, make sure your own face mask is on first before helping children. Uh, and uh, we'll be coming more along with the trolley for uh, drinks and snacks very soon. But we're now in Spain, uh, where we can speak to our correspondent, Graeme Keeley. Hi, Graeme. What's the weather like in Spain? I'm afraid it's a bit um, cloudy, um, not not sunny Spain at all. 
Well, is the sun shining on uh, Spain's rollout of the vaccine programme? 5.9% uh, of Spaniards have been vaccinated, 37th in the world. How's it going? Not very well, as you can judge by the figures. Basically, <laughs> Spain says they want to get 70% of the population um, vaccinated by the summer to open up the country to the tourism sector. Um, at the moment, they're managing about, uh, on average, 170,000 a day. But to hit their target of, of vaccinating 70% of the population, they need to almost double that and get 300,000 um, vaccinated. So it's, it's going too slowly, basically. And uh, how is that impacting on uh, public attitudes towards the, the Spanish government? Um, people are getting angry. They're seeing what's happening in Britain uh, and they're saying, you know, how come Britain's um, surging ahead and we're still um, vaccinating old people uh, in, in, in rest homes? No resentment towards the, uh, the uh, elderly who are getting uh, the, the jabs, but um, they're saying, why aren't we, hit, uh, why aren't we uh, uh, vaccinating younger people? They have said they're going to vaccinate people um, in the uh, 50 uh, to 55 age uh, limit, but still those people haven't received any notification yet. So, as I say, it's going quite slowly. Uh, in fact, yeah, I was just looking on the the YouGov uh, tracker. In fact, Spain, although it was at the beginning of last month, the last time they polled in Spain, but Spain on just 28% of people thought the government was handling uh, the uh, pandemic well. That's down for about half uh, back last uh, summer. So actually Spain, although uh, some of the others, France has picked up since then. So maybe maybe, maybe Spain will too. Uh, one of the really striking things, vaccine willingness has surged. Uh, barely half of people in Spain were willing to have the jab in December. It's now up to three quarters. So, so actually it, it feels like the, the public are saying, yes, not only do we want the vaccine, we're very cross that you haven't done better at giving it to us. Yes, absolutely. I think people are seeing um, more and more people getting it. Perhaps they know their parents here have, have got it now. They're seeing, you know, nothing's happened to these people and they're, they're fine. Um, and also they're seeing what's happening in other countries where, you know, there's been no great uh, problems with the vaccine and they're seeing, uh, well, we better, you know, get vaccinated too. I think there's also the factor that people may want to do that, uh, may want to get the jab uh, for reasons of travel or for reasons of work. And, and there's some talk of vaccine passports, which may mean you, you'll need this vaccine if you want to go abroad. And in terms of, I imagine lots of people want to go on holiday to Spain. Um, does it feel like the, the, that might be possible this summer if people have got holidays booked or thinking of booking holidays? Well, certainly the tourism sector here is absolutely desperate to get people over. And Spain is pushing very hard for um, uh, countries like Britain and Germany to uh, agree um, uh, the vaccine passport and, and other measures. Uh, they're also talking about uh, a green corridor into places like the Balearic Islands. Um, they may try and get uh, uh, tourists over to, to the Balearics or the Canary Islands uh, before the, the, the whole of the country um, to open up some, uh, some uh, summer holidays for, for British people in, in Spain this summer. Well, yeah, I imagine lots of, lots of people just want to get away uh, somewhere. Really good to speak to as ever. Graeme Keeley in uh, Spain. It's back to the plane now. Times Radio Airways taken off on our whistle-stop tour of the world uh, to see how the vaccine rollout is going. We asked that all emotional baggage is stowed away safely during the flight. Our final stop then is Germany. Oliver Moody is the Times Berlin correspondent. What's the weather like there, Oliver? Do you know what? It's actually fantastic for once. Berlin's really outdone itself today. <laughs>
<laughs> Very good. Um, less fantastic is the rollout of the vaccine. Only 5.9% of Germans have been vaccinated, 37th in the world. So much for uh, the Germans always do it better. That's right. Um, Olaf Scholz, the German finance minister, said last night that um, he reckons the country can get up to uh, sort of 10 million a week by early summer. And there's a childish part of me that wants to read that out in the voice Dr. Evil uses for his ransom demands because <laughs> the country's managed only 5 million doses in total um, over the past 10 weeks. And um, to get to Scholz's target, it would have to accelerate what it's doing now by a factor of about six or seven. Um, so it does seem pretty, pretty yeah. ambitious and arbitrary. Um, having bounced around in the high 70s in terms of government approval uh, last summer, sort of 75, 76, 77% of people saying that uh, Angela Merkel's government was handling the crisis well, things have taken a bit of a tumble now. Fewer than half of Germans saying uh, the government is, is handling it well. It, is it down to the, to the vaccination rollout, having done quite well in terms of lockdowns and keeping the number of cases low? Well, I think it's a, a confluence of things. Um, so depending on which poll you're looking at, roughly equal parts of the population are now either satisfied or dissatisfied with how the government's doing. <laughs> and it looks like um, the, the latter is going to take over the, um, the picture quite soon. Um, that's partly down to dissatisfaction with vaccinations. It's partly down to the fact that we've been in lockdown since November and still the case numbers are, are going up. Um, and it's also down to the fact that very recently we've had um, a PPE corruption scandal, or rather two PPE corruption scandals in Angela Merkel's party, uh, which could cause all kinds of complications in the, the elections that are coming up. And uh, I noticed that, I mean, far be it for me to go all sort of, you know, two world wars and one world cup. But uh, after all the, the arguments about um, vaccinations and uh, how Germany was, was behind uh, the UK, Angela Merkel's now now rewritten the vaccination rules to follow Britain's lead. In terms of um, offering the AstraZeneca vaccine to over 65s? Yes, and also uh, delaying uh, delaying the jab uh, the, between the first and the second jab. There was lots of you know suggestions early on that Britain was out on a limb and we were doing the wrong thing by by going by allowing sort of three months between the first and the second jab. But that's now happening in Germany as well. It is. I mean, it's what we're looking at here is countries taking sort of different approaches to risk appetite, and Britain clearly looked at the scientific evidence, which was which was unclear back in December, and said, well, we, you know, we think this is how things are going. So let's let's take a slightly more risky approach in the belief that it will probably be fine. And it was fine. And so now Germany has had to adapt its own more cautious approach because um, offering AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca to over 65s and uh, delaying the second dose allows you much more flexibility in your logistics so you can get much more people vaccinated. Is that going to hurt Angela Merkel having to follow Boris Johnson's example? I don't think she cares at all. Um, she's she's <laughs> quite deep more happy. Uh, she's into her last six months as Chancellor. Her personal popularity is very insulated still um, from the wider air of corruption and incompetence that is sort of starting to settle around her party. Um, I, I don't think she's bothered about it. Well, it's really good to speak to you um, as ever. Oliver Moody is the Times Berlin correspondent. But I'm afraid he's back onto the play now and we head back uh, to the UK, where the latest figures show a third of people have had the uh, vaccination, uh, or at least had one dose of the vaccination, putting it fifth in the world. 
Uh, and 85% of people say they are willing to have uh, the jab, uh, one of the highest uh, rates in the UK. Uh, that's it for Times Radio Airways. I'm sure we'll be back on board very soon. One day, maybe we should actually charter a plane and be like Ant and Deck and take a load of listeners on holiday. Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bit of my Times Radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times Radio app. And if you want to read more about all of the stories we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.